0: final robert sheriff nobody's home nobody's home in the name of the father chapter 1 my father did not admit to having a past the story of his early life was a mystery lost in his lack of words and an inability to expose anything that could be vulnerability humanity or even kindness my mother would eventually and begrudgingly supply me a few details but this only went on to provoke more questions he was an enigma to the end leaving no suicide note no apology and no peace for those who survived him. I am only certain of one thing. My father's hate for me was virulent. The dynamic of the real family is rarely the all-encompassing love of the fairy tale or the softness of the detergent commercial, but my family was extreme by any standards. Violence was our currency, and the absence of genuine love left a void that was filled with darkness, betrayal and humiliation. We were an Australian family and Australia was an uncompromising place in the 60s or at least that is how it appeared to me. We were told we were growing up in the lucky country. We were told we could achieve anything through hard work and spirit yet at the same time I was being brutalized and made to feel worthless by the people I love the most. It would happen at night. I was small for my age, a premature twin, the smallest to survive in Victoria at the time, I was easily carried out of the house and into the garden by someone of my father's build. He would be drunk, clumsy, and rough. I would be hastily stripped. My clothes were torn from me, and I would have to stand defenceless and naked in the yard. I would have to take my chances. I would not wait to see if he would stop at the humiliation and spare me the violence, he never did. I would take advantage of his drunkenness and feel for his grip to loosen or slip and then I would go. I would run through the neighbourhood to escape the attack. Was I worried about the neighbour seeing me naked? Hardly, this had happened so many times before. I knew what it was to run barefoot on cracked bitumen that was baking from the day's biting sun. I knew running naked in the near-freezing winter nights too. I knew what it was like to be running for your life. I spent a childhood running the streets and I've spent a lifetime escaping my father. My father was born in South Australia in 1929. He was the son of a prostitute and born out of wedlock. He must have not known his father in any meaningful way, but he will have had suspicions about the 100s of men who visited his mother's house. My father had inherited a large build, olive skin, deep brown eyes, and tremendous capacity for anger. My father's hair and mood were black for his entire life. The earliest photograph I have seen of my father is him as a boy holding a black dog. He had a patience with animals that he was never able to show to people. He was tall and skinny with a mop of black hair. This child would develop into a man of 6 foot 4 with a powerful build clothed in skin scarred by the Australian sun. He was mutilated emotionally and carried a pain that could infect anyone in his vicinity. His hands would grow to be huge, always at least twice the size of mine yet he was quite graceful in his movements and well kept. He was clean shaven and took pride in his appearance. At home he dressed in casual jeans and shirt, and he insisted that they were clean and ironed which meant my mother would often discover lipstick stains on his collar. A fight would then ensue with the devil rising into those brown eyes and consuming the man. My father's childhood was as fractured as any other part of his life. He would always be on the move, change jobs and locations and even personalities but his consistent companions were alcohol and misery. He was christened Robert Sheriff, the same name he gave me. He left school early and worked a succession of tough, unskilled jobs. He was a station hand and a fruit picker and went from one manual labor to another building calluses and emotional hardness. The one anecdote I know from his youth is an incident where he nearly drowned. At age 9 he was pulled from the water at Port Perry. Perry was and still is a small industrial town in the shadow of grain silos and a lead smelter, about a three-hour drive north of Adelaide where grain shipping and industry had called for unskilled immigrants to come and build a town. All of life in Perry takes place with the backdrop of the smell of sulfur, a soft scent of hell from the lead smelting process. One day my father fell into the water that carried the grain ships and plunged toward oblivion in the waters that reflected the belching chimney stacks. A man walking past at the time saw my father fall and dived into the water to save him. The story made the local press where it describes my father's savior as a hero. This stranger's act has ensured 35 descendants, I exist because of him, my children and grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my sisters, my beloved twin brother were all offered a chance of life because my father did not drown that day, but I wonder if my father had any appreciation for his rescuer and those bitter and soulless years he lived until he decided to meet his maker at his own hands. Though my father's history was patchy my memories of my own childhood are not. The sight of his near death became significant for me as a young boy as he took me there to teach me how to swim. Father's lesson involved throwing me off the jetty with a grin on his face. I had sunk in the same waters he had, in the shadow of the same industrial chimneys and in the runoff of the same toxic processes. I did not have a hero on the banks poised to save me. I would have to save myself. I had already learned by this stage that I would have to fight to survive him, and I swam for the surface and pulled myself out of the water to spite him repeatedly. I have an image of my father, when he was outside the house, as a well-dressed man, a man who wore grey pants a white shirt and a two-toned brown and grey jacket that was considered respectable at that time. He was always drinking. He drank West End long necks at breakfast time. He had three cartons at home every week but that was nothing to what he drank in the pub. I think my mother had tried to get him to cut back once but she was never foolish enough to suggest it again. Every image I can conjure of him has him glass in hand or glass to lips. People feared him. He dominated every space he entered and other people, even adults, were as affected as me. He had a dark energy, a belligerent nature and he would live life with a dangerous soundtrack of his beloved country music or loud rock and roll. Our house echoed with the sound of Johnny Cash and Hank Williams. It made me hate county music and I am only starting to get over my aversion now. The neighbors were always scared of my father. Wherever we lived he created an empire where his actions were uncriticized for fear of violence and retaliation. All our neighbors witnessed my humiliation plenty of times. They were scared to get involved and even if they witnessed with closed mouths they were greeted with a barrage of snarling and swearing. I know there was an ugly silence around our house and people were witness to horrific crimes without ever speaking up or intervening. I do not carry any resentment for those people. This was a time when men were masters in their own house. It was not uncommon for children or wives to be abused and the man to rape the wife then the abuser to meet the police sergeant in the hotel for a quiet word and a pint later. In the early 60s in Australia there were no safe houses, no campaigns against domestic violence and a belief that a family was a man's property. I think there was only one occasion when an adult intervened on my behalf. He was called Mr. White and I remember that he always wore brown, was 6 feet 6 inches, around 240 pounds with blonde wavy hair and couple days of beard growth. He was solid as a shit house that used to be at the back of Auntie Blanche's and Uncle Albert's house. Mr. White was briefly my savior, my man on the shore who saw my fall and dived in to save me. We lived on Hargrave Street in Northfield at the time and Mr. White was a neighbor who tired of my father's version of childcare and belted the crap out of him. The police arrived just as he was walking due east and we never saw Mr. White again. This was a rare adult intervention on my behalf. An act of violence that did not teach my father a thing and did not save me from further abuse. As I have said I am not angry at the witnesses who did not come forward or the authorities that did not protect me. People knew right from wrong but unless you were Mr. White you were not armed enough to take my father on. Justice was only available to the physically strong and often my father was by far the strongest. My father was an advocate for the merits of physical strength. He hated my smallness, my frailness, and my inability to hurt the same way he could. He systematically set about to teach his children strength and suffering. He would fill two buckets with water and tell me to stretch my arms out. I knew to do as I was told and despite knowing what was coming I would always do exactly as he asked. When my arms were out and steady, he would loop the bucket handles over my wrists and demand that I hold them there, straight for as long as I could. I would hold the buckets, my arms screaming with pain. Desperate not to disappoint or spark the anger of my father. He would watch me and justify his actions with the defense that he was driving me to be healthier and more vigorous. This was the start of my father's torture, and it began when I was six years old. I have other recollections of this early abuse. He had caught me swearing and decided to chastise me to teach me a lesson. He took me outside and removed my trousers and underwear. He then put me over his knee and beat me with a garden hose. The strokes were so violent that I was left with blue and red strokes over my backside and sitting down was impossible for the coming week. These memories are vague and without detail, but I recognize them as the start of patterns of abuse that would culminate in broken bones, emotional damage, and a world of hate that not everyone would survive. My mother met my father in 1952. He was working for the RAF and she told me it was love at first sight. I believe that she did love him before they were married in that moment when he first arrived in her life and before she really knew him. He was tall and good-looking. Her family had been extremely strict whilst his upbringing was wild and libertarian. She must have seen him as a glamorous escape. In 1953 they married. She told me that all his mates came, and he joined them in getting very drunk. She was appalled but she must have known that alcohol and my father were synonymous by then. His heritage was beer soaked with his mother being a heavy drinker and the addictive gene being passed on to me. I wonder if she knew how tormented her new, young husband was. I wonder what sort of life she had dreamed of and if she thought that my father could bring her happiness. She could never have known she would die with her husband lost to suicide and her family absent from her bedside. My father was 24 years old when my brother Peter and I were born. My mother recalled that he was upset by the drive to the hospital to see his new sons. It had been an inconvenience to come to visit and he was happy for her to know it. I cannot remember much of those early years at home with my mother and brother, but that is no reason to assume they were comfortable or without incident. My father would often remind me that he had hated me from my birth. He told me that he wished I had never been born or had died in childbirth on many occasions, and it was like I had been born into his hatred and lived there my whole life. His insult to me was that I was fucking stupid. He would use that insult for my entire childhood, and it did the damage he required. My father's need for destruction was always going to end with his own. We were just lucky he could not take us with him. He had been known to come home drunk with a can of petrol and threaten to set himself, the house and us alight. His pain was not a personal matter but something everyone else had to pay for. At night I would lie awake waiting for him to come home. I was terrified by the cast of the streetlight outside my room. It would reflect in the dark of his eyes if he came into my room. It would make him look like the demon he was and convince me that this small industrial town was a corner of hell. He would stalk around the house brooding over something that happened that day, last week, a month ago, or not even at all. He would look for his target. My mother, my brother, my sister, or me. Then he would punish, seek vengeance. All his misery and hatred and disappointment would be played out on his victim. Often, I was that victim, the focus for his spite. Everyone was terrified of this man, and I became a scapegoat. My father once told me he was more frightened of me than I should be of him. Perhaps therefore he reserved a special hatred for me. I can remember his hand around my throat. His thumb on my Adam's apple. Four or five seconds of pressure is all it will take. He would say. Perhaps he was promising to end my pain as well as his. I know my mother blamed me for things she did. She stole money and blamed me. She even buried $2,000 in the garden once and dad went over it with the lawnmower. She laid the responsibility with me. She was just trying to avoid another rape or beating. And so, the violence continued. We moved around Australia taking my father's misery and torture with us. I was beaten by my father at the pie cart. I was beaten by him in the street. I was beaten at home. Fists and abuse were the landscape of my childhood as much as the hot dry summers and crabbing down at the jetty. Days out with my father were tours of the hotels or waiting in the car outside a brothel. Every lesson I learned under his tuition was self-destructive and selfish. The irony was that I still loved that man. He was my father, and I was his son. It would take a particularly brutal assault to give me any chance of escape and once again my rescuers would not be hauling me out of the water but dragging me further under. I would not be able to take a breath for some while. Mother's love. Chapter 2. In defense of my mother, she was a dreamer. I understand that now that I have made it to adulthood. I got through my life by constructing a future where things were better. It was an impossible dream that allowed us to disengage from reality and to survive it. From an early age, she wanted to escape the poverty of her upbringing and the limits of her class. She wanted to be better, different, and special. She dreamt of Hollywood and imagined being a singer or a movie actress. She would constantly play records on an old gramophone that I now keep in my current home. We were brought up to the sounds of Al Jolson and my mother in duet echoing through the house. My mother would imagine being one of the artists she played, an international superstar. I think she must have imagined that life for me too and that way she did not have to acknowledge my reality. In her head I was with her on the stage. I was famous, rich, happy and she did not have to feel any guilt. I shared her dreams of being anywhere far away from where I was and inherited her ability to live in a constructed fantasy rather than face the pain of my real life. It is a method for those of us who have extraordinarily little light. We descend into a darkness where we must imagine stars. My mother's was born November 1934. Like my father, she was born out of wedlock at a time when such things were important. My mother's, mother and grandmother and her aunties and uncles were all born in Victoria to relatively poor families. My mother told me there was a lot of mental health problems on her mother's side and instability and chaos would be passed on to her offspring. In her youth she was a beautiful-looking woman, 5 feet 5 inches, brown hair, blue eyes, skin like peaches and cream, with a slender build. She was a vibrant person who must have had her fair share of admirers. My mother's secret about being Aboriginal six generations back on her mother's side, half caste, where she wanted to hide this from the world and her children. On Robert's father's side, his great grandfather was from Scotland. Robert was a stolen generation child in 1961. Then to be made a ward of the state of South Australia in 1961. An indifferent society. I expect she had quite a choice if she was prepared to settle for ordinary working man. My father was not a film star or singer, but he was not the pedestrian normal Aussie bloke either. Perhaps that was his appeal. My father was the one who brought violence into the house. My father was a bully, a coward, a drunkard, and an abuser. However, my mother did not protect me. My mother did not defend me. In fact, my mother would sometimes be responsible for putting me in the path of my father to defend herself. I find it difficult to understand and forgive her for the childhood I endured, but I do know that she suffered at his hands too and was ill equipped for the challenge that was leaving him. She was also scared. She suffered both physical and sexual abuse from the beginning of their relationship and this is a time where safe houses and domestic abuse prosecutions were unheard of. Perhaps if my mother had a better connection with reality, she would never have entertained my father but finding herself married and pregnant she was content to withdraw into fantasy and let her children take their chances. My mother and father originally put down roots in Victoria and our first home was in a little town called Laverton. We lived in a rustic red brick house with a flat silver roof that reflected the sun so you could always see our roof from the bottom of the highway. I remember a large lounge and the floorboards that creaked. All the sounds of that time are fearful and ominous. There was the sound of a howling wind out in the backyard that often accompanied my play and there was the sound of my parents fighting from tea time to midnight. It was the backdrop to my early childhood, the score of a horror movie. If my parents had a honeymoon period, then it was well and truly over by the time I was born. I was born 10-25 p.m. 8th of July 1954 in Carlton Hospital, Victoria, one of twin baby boys, my brother Peter being born 10 minutes later. We were premature, and you could hold us in one hand as we were exactly 2 pounds each. At that stage we were the smallest children to ever survive in Victoria. Mother was only 20 years old. At one stage she would have 5 children under 8 and that was very nearly 6 if not for my baby brother's death. Mother had to go hospital each day to express milk as we were in incubators for months before we could come home. Mother said that father always complained about driving her to the hospital each day as he was tired from work. We were born into resentment and when we came home, we would have to be feed every 3-4 to four hours. Father never ever fed or changed us, so mother had to deal with two babies on her own because he was working or sleeping. To give my mother's story some context you would have to understand Australia in 1954. I have said before that Australia was known at this time as the lucky country. We were about to see an economic boom. The Second World War had finished nine years ago, the Korean War had ended the year previously. Everyone was your friend, you did not lock your doors. People would go to the football, cricket, tennis, races, and the beach. Life was good, life was fun. Young couples would walk along the beach, hold hands. It was optimistic and innocent. The hotels would shut at 6 p.m., and the men, boys, could not drink or vote until they were 21. This was a country built to raise a family, to prosper and live. My mother must have felt very outside of this idea when she brought her children home to a man who hated them. She told me from day one he resented me. She recalls him throwing me around the room. I was the firstborn son and the focus for all his rage. I was her little soldier but instead of intervening she used me to provoke my father. She admitted to finding ways to torment him. She would tell him she hated him, and his response would be to run riot, scream, rant, punch doors and walls. I was a mummy's boy, but my mother was also lighting the fuse that would explode and end up destroying my childhood. I must ask myself what she had ever seen in this man. She had such ambition, such aspiration for a better life, and when he showed up, she must have thought he was her ticket out or at least the best available option. By the time I was born, I feel she knew what sort of ride she was in for. She knew she was ascending into the twilight zone. A version of hell she could not escape but it was too late to turn back the clock. She had to learn fast how to control those events and when she realizes, she could not have decided that she must at least survive. One of her strategies must have been to sacrifice me. I remember my mother would steal out of my father's wallet and blame it on me. As ridiculous as it sounds, I was the suspect in any theft from about two years old. I had no need or understanding of the pound notes but still I was the scapegoat. They would fight, and mother would pry me to be quiet to not speak about witnessing her helping herself to the money, and this is how she survived. Playing games and pitting family member against family member was her tactic in the war that was our home life. There was a time when she did intervene in a beating. My father had been hitting me and she had gone to the kitchen to arm herself with a knife. She told him to leave me alone or she would kill him. My father then wrestled the knife from her clutches and then turned it on himself. He then had challenged my mother to push it into him, and kill him. I remember seeing the hate in her eyes and I do remember that she did try to stab my father but after egging her on to kill him he resisted. I believe she really meant to do it and I know she must have wanted to. My mother knew from an early age I would run away. She told me so. When I did run away, I could really take the opportunity to get lost within myself and would pretend my parents were the right people, real people, good people, and loving parents. My physical absence made it easier to indulge my emotional absence. I was as lost as she was. Her real world was full of emptiness. As I grew, she showed less and less pity, less remorse and she tried hard to manipulate all situations to her advantage. She seemed to give up on the real world and only exist in her fantasy. She was unable to stand and protect her children from the beast. She was unable to leave. She would let this monster torture and subject his son to a terrible childhood. Her decision to accept this existence for her son could be read as loyalty to her husband or fear for her life but it was just weakness, a desire to live in fantasy rather than face the truth. Do I hate my mother for her inability to protect me? No, I love her. She was my mother. I have one recollection of her happiness and it came in 1977 at my father's funeral. I swear that she cried tears of joy. She had survived her marriage to this man. Near the end of life my mother had significant brain aneurysms, and this resulted in the need for major surgery. My mother could not do anything for herself, and my sister would wash, change, and dress her. I was amazed at how she was still very feisty. My mother had experienced one of the toughest lives you could. Her body was three-quarters useless and yet she still had spirit. Certainly, my mother was not a good mother, but she was a survivor. She had lived a nightmare, withdrawn from it and passed it on to her children but she did manage to retain part of herself in doing so. I did not go to my mother's funeral. I was told of her death sometime after it happened. I did bring my mother's ashes back to my house though. I walked through the front door and the hair stood up on my neck. Above my bed was a picture of Paris with the Eiffel Tower prominent. That day my wife had been to buy a quilt set and had returned with the pillows cases and cover each having the same picture of the tower on them. My mother had come home in a box with the same image on. Was my mother trying to communicate with me from the grave? Was it coincidence? It may have just been a reminder of how we had both survived by creating similar fantasies. I was left shaking, and all the memories of childhood came rushing back to overwhelm me. I started to float, leave my body, and engage all the coping strategies I had created to survive my childhood. None of us escape unscathed in the end. Boiling Point Chapter 3 Our unhappy family suffered tragedy in Victoria. My parents had gone on to have another son two years after I and my twin were born, and he had died. I recall him as a happy, healthy baby with three teeth and I remember trying to stir him from his sleep and his refusal to wake up. I was the one who found my precious little brother lifeless, and I always felt there was a lot of anger towards me from my father as if my discovery were somehow linked to responsibility. Perhaps my face just carried a reminder of the pain of losing a child. I just knew I felt my grief at the loss and a little extra too. I also always had doubts about my mother's possible involvement. She was tired, broken and struggling with the children she already had. Was it impossible that she snapped? My parents were left with three sons and one daughter and in 1960 they packed us into a car and moved us to South Australia. The journey would take two weeks with father drinking heavily and then driving in short bursts. The destination was Port Perry where his mother lived. As far as I know the move was prompted by a combination of a few things. Father had enough of his job, and he wanted to be around extended family. We did not ask for any sort of reason and spent the journey staring out of the car window or waiting for him to wake or sober up so we could get on the move again. Perry is still a tough industrial town. It has probably changed very little since my arrival. I recall my first sight of the landscape and the skyline being dominated by the huge wheat silos as we hit town. There was also the smell of the lead smelter, the air always with its ominous touch of sulfur. This was the setting for the most significant event in my young life and my descent into a personal hell. I did not know what I was in for, but I was not naive enough to think life was going to be wonderful from now on. Moving to Perry did give us the opportunity to be around family. My grandmother and great-grandmother lived there, and I had aunts and uncles. We could have had freedom as simple childhood with a wide circle of connected adults. I was not convinced by the idea of an extended family, a community where I could grow in a safe and supportive environment. I am not sure what fantasy my mother was moving to, but I had developed a sort of cynicism. I was already a damaged child. I would pinch myself, hit myself and leave bruises over my body. I would like to bang my head hard and try and hurt myself. I would hide under my bed when things got tough. If anybody had looked at me, they would have seen that I was not a happy, normal young boy. I do remember playing out in the garden at the house in Perry with my brother and twin, Peter. I did have some simple childhood pleasures and all of these happy childhood memories are populated by Peter and me. We lived behind a bakery on Swift Street and occasionally we would get treats from the baker. He would give us cakes and biscuits and we would be at the height of luxury and indulgence eating the sweetness out in the garden. I also remember my one and only time on a horse when I and Peter had mounted one briefly in a field before it galloped off and ejected us over a fence. The street was still old-fashioned housing with outside toilets and little in the way of real luxury or modernity but to my young mind it was an exciting, vibrant place as there was a siren from the smelter that sounded every hour on the hour, and we could hear it from our house. The good memories are rare, and those times are hard to recall. Perry did not offer me any more of a childhood that Victoria had done. I was already terrified of my father. I would shake, wet myself and even shit myself in his company. I did not know exactly why I was so scared but later my mother told me about incidents with cigarette butts held on my arms and legs when I had been younger in Victoria. Even if I had not retained all the details of what he did he was still a figure who promised pain and fear and I knew that he had a dislike for me. That day started like most days with my father going to the hotel. It was early in the summer of 1961. He was working on the railways at the time but must have taken some time off to go drinking. Some of his friends from the RAF had come over from Victoria to visit for the week. Mother thought that he might have been playing cards and lost a lot of money. He came back to the house with a smirk on his face and immediately embarked on a sustained beating that would cost me bones and teeth. I was in the backyard playing. I remember it as a sunny day. I think I remember him coming in the house. I would have said hello Rob. As I never called him dad. He called us all into the house and all of us kids were assembled in front of him. He was swearing and punching the walls and shrieking like a lunatic. My siblings were faster than me and took to their heels to escape. My father managed to catch hold of me and declared that if anyone tried to help me, he would kill them. The attack was ferocious and epic, my father's masterpiece of domestic violence. Other family members have described the events of that day spanning as much as seven hours. During my assault, mother had time to save the other children by taking them through a gap in the fence to a neighbor. My uncles had also tried to intervene and showed up at our house but my father had said that if they went to my aid, he would kill me. It would take the arrival of eight policemen to finally halt the attack but by that point I had lost teeth and armed with a broomstick father had broken my arm and four ribs. He was a drunk, snarling mess and even as he was restrained by the police, he was still screaming that he was going to kill me. I called him a bastard that day and when I did, he spat at me. The police began to hit him but even that did not wipe the look from his face. When the police had arrived at the house I had been hiding under the bed. I was covered in shit and piss, shaking, and refusing to come out. I was 7 years old. It took the police close to an hour to talk me out from my refuge. My mother was also trying to get me to emerge, but I ignored her, avoided her touch, and would not respond to her at all. When I did come out it was to the arms of a policeman. I had more faith in the treatment I would get from a uniformed stranger than anyone in my immediate family. The police took me to the hospital then back to the police station where they stripped me of all my clothes and took photos of me naked. I then went back to the hospital. The photos were to be used as evidence but in the end were considered too horrific to share. My mother told me in the latter years that she had never seen me so scared before and that I was as white as a ghost. I told her I had been scared every day of my life. A police officer held me all the way to the hospital and then back to the police station and then back to the hospital. These officers may have had children of my age and may even go home to them that evening after dealing with the effects of my father's evil on his child. I imagine it was a difficult day at work for them. I was worried about my brothers and sisters. I did not know at that stage they were next door, safe, away from my father. I did not know whether they had suffered the same or even worse than me. That evening I lay delirious in hospital shaking and crying and even calling out for my parents. I was still able to hero worship my parents not because I loved them than me or because they had any good qualities but because I was able to construct a fantasy about who they were. In my semi-conscious state, I was calling out for my fantasy mother and father, the good strong man and the loving, nurturing woman. When I did become fully conscious and found my mother there, I began to scream, and the hospital eventually removed my mother to stop me the distress. There was a court order to keep my father away, but I was so traumatized that the approach of any adult would make me shake and wet the bed. I trusted nobody, but the nurses were patient. They washed me, held me, let me sleep with the light on and would be there to comfort me when I cried. For a long time, I was in a great deal of physical pain and my body was battered and bruised. I spent one week in the Perry hospital and then was sent to live with a policeman and his family while arrangements were being made. It took me a long time to recover physically from the broken bones and I'm not sure I knew exactly what would happen to me but for this time I was part of a normal family. There was a happiness for me here. The family were kind and had children my age too but I knew it was temporary and that the family life I was experiencing was never going to be rightly mine. The police had notified the community welfare department about the incident, and they wanted to make my brothers and sister wards of state. It would mean my family was to be monitored by the department and visited for the next four years. The consequences for me would be more significant. The attack cost my father the love of his family. His mother and grandmother never forgave him. A lot of his friends were now able to see the type of man he was at home, the true him and they withdrew not liking who they saw. My father was sacked from his job, and this began his cycle of job after, job, after job, of failure and blown chances. The judge wanted to jail my father. He described him as a vicious creature. I still have the cutting from the local paper with the judge's quote. My father had also admitted to two other counts of violence against me. It turned out that he had been arrested for violence against me on two previous occasions in South Australia. My mother pleaded to the judge for leniency, perhaps for his sake or perhaps for herself. She pointed out that he was the breadwinner and that she had given birth to my baby sister and that she had other children to support. The judge heard her appeals and fined my father £50. This was a lot of money in 1961 and it would have caused the family great hardship to pay it. I recovered my physical health whilst in the care of the police, but I was far from undamaged. My ability to trust, To love to know happiness was starting to erode and at seven years old I needed support and so the authorities decided that I needed to be removed from my family and placed in the safety of the state. I was driven by three policemen to the Glendor boys' home, and I am sure they thought they were delivering me from evil. I was to be protected from my father and placed in the care of professionals who had the experience to bring up a fragile little boy. Out of the frying pan. Chapter 4. Glendor. I was a victim of my father and a victim of the state. I know the moment where I was changed forever, and it happened at Glandor Boys' Home. The home was founded in 1869 and went through a few name changes, including Edwardstown Industrial School, until it shut in 1973. I knew it as Glandor, but it might as well be hell. It was run in a military style with order and discipline used as cover for brutality. We had weekly haircuts, domestic duties and regular inspections. We were being taught to be clean, respectful, obey rules and to keep our mouths shut. Above all, we needed to keep our mouths shut. I will always remember the day my innocence was stolen. I was seven years old. Although I had just been through the most disturbing and grotesque experience in my family home at the hands of the people I most loved, trusted. I still looked up to my parents. I still loved my parents, it did not matter what they did. I loved them and wanted them back. Every night I was away from my parents, I fretted. I was worried about them. I was still loyal to my family, my blood. I missed my twin brother. He had been my companion for seven years. I had never been apart from him. I would cry all night, loudly and vigorously. I would scream and sob. On my first day in the home, I had showered in the morning with the other boys. One of the older boys had punched me and I had run out of the building naked and wet. There was a nurse there, a kind adult who had wrapped me in a towel and comforted me. I'm sure if she had known what was in store for me, she might have told me to keep running." John Bartlett started at Glandor Boys Home 1955 as the third most senior officer. He was a very tall man, solid build, he looked like a bear. His hands were quite big, and he had dark black hair and deep, dark brown eyes. He was in his mid 30s. Bartlett had a son at Glandor. The boy had been born with cerebral palsy. There was an incident where I had seen Bartlett deal with his upset son by beating him into silence. He was from the same school of childcare as my father. It was John Bartlett who first sexually assaulted me. I can recall the incident. There was a shed between the kitchen office and the school. It was windowless, dark. Outside the sun was gleaming and a large adult cast a shadow over me, his face blacked in silhouette. I was scared, terrified. I was so aware of my heart racing and my limbs trembling as I was escorted from the daylight into the dark recess. I started to feel an out-of-body experience coming on. There was a golden light God, Jesus that was flooding over me. I now recognize the face of the dark figure. It is John Bartlett. I saw him perfectly, clearly, I still see him to this day. I was stripped. My shoes, undies, singlet taken away. I began to scream, and a hand was put over my mouth. I couldn't breathe. I was gasping, struggling to suck in air. I was suspended, limp in the grasp of this man. Afterwards I was lying on the ground in the fetal position. I put my hand to my bum and brought it back covered in blood and shit. It smelled terrible. I thought of my mother and father. They would have killed John Bartlett. As much as they had hurt me, they would have stopped this, surely. I was in shock, the experience, the blood on my hands. I had changed in that moment. At first, I had felt great pain but as I endured what happened I became numb. I became like the other boys. We were in a war zone and we could not win. We had to withdraw into ourselves and pray for survival. There was a cast of adult characters at Glandor, some good, some bad but all must have suspected or even known what was happening. There was an air of brutality about much of what happened day to day. Vern Beard was the headmaster of the school for roughly 40 years. He was in charge when I attended. He was a very imposing figure with a 18th century beard. He loved the cane and from time to time would use a ping-pong bat on the backs of hands or even bare asses. He would often appear when we were in the showers and stand staring at our naked bodies, Especially the genitals. All the boys called him the pig. Jim Slade was the superintendent. He was a short man, bald, a little fat, who wore glasses. Mister and Missus Slade had no children of their own. Missus Slade was beautiful. Missus Slade thought of us as her sometimes, whilst her husband loved the cane too. When he canned you, he gave it everything he had, and sweat would drip down his face. Nurse Flaherty smoked all the time. I remember her from day one at the boys' home. She was kind, caring above all a nurse. She was there if every I hurt myself, she always had lots of band-aids. She had yellowish golden hair that was long and curly. I remember her teeth were like the shark's teeth you see in Jaws movies. Her eyes were open very wide all the time. I do not think I have seen anyone else look like this. She was a character and had the most infectious laugh. Don Craig was the second most senior officer at Glandor Boys Home. Don was tall 6 foot plus, late 40s with a mustache that he would curl, and he had a very slight humped back. He would flirt with all the female staff and the boys liked him. Mr. Craig taught me this saying. I complained because I had no shoes until I meet a man who had no feet. And then there are the others, the faceless and nameless man who became part of my Glandor experience and taught me nothing but hate. There was the man in his fifties who walked with a cane. He liked to grab the boys by their penises and if you resisted, he would give you a beating. Then there was the skinny guy with a big nose who would have his hands all over you. He had a voice a little like Bugs Bunny. My whole time at Glandor was punctuated by brutal acts of abuse by adults and even some of the older boys and those abusers were confident that nobody would stop them. It was early on at Glandor that I found out about death. I remember seeing a dead bird on the ground and another boy explaining that the bird had now gone to heaven. Even at that age the idea of death appealed to me. I had fantasies about being wrapped up in a blanket and shut in a box. I was warm, safe from the outside world. I would not exist so nobody could harm me. I became excellent at living in a fantasy world. Disassociation became my normal state of being at Glandor. I perfected within those walls as a means of survival. I was a victim, but I was not the only victim. This was an institution run on the abuse of those nobody cared about, devils put in charge of the most vulnerable and most voiceless children. At Glandor, I made friends with a boy named Trevor. We were both seven years old and we formed a bond in that hell which kept us going. Trevor was taller than me with red hair and light brown eyes. Trevor was a ward of state too. We used to dorm together, play together and even shower together. I remember running along the tram line with him and on occasion we even managed to persuade the milkman or baker for free goodies to share. At night we would lie out on the oval and look at the stars. Trevor and I once took an extra bowl of porridge at breakfast and Slade gave us one hell of a canning. The memory is so vivid it is like it was yesterday. Trevor, my friend, my blood brother. I have tried to find out what happened to him. I saw him when we were 12 years old. He was behind a window, and we were forbidden to speak. We both cried. I asked the police to see if there was any trace of him. He had disappeared, left no records of his existence at Glandor. How can somebody just disappear? Glandor will probably never give up all its secrets and all I can do is tell my story and curse the brutes who preyed on me. Trevor committed suicide in 1978. Chapter 5. Angels and Demons. I have lived a life of dreams and nightmares for 56 years now. I must accept that much of the man I am is because of that little boy lost, because of Bartlett, my father and the others who preyed upon my vulnerability. Of course, I am also the boy who survived all that and made it through to an adult life. I had the resources, the skills, and the luck to live long enough despite my attempts to take another path. I will tell you about the suicidal feelings and actions that were part of my life and how it is a minor miracle that I am still here to tell this story. But first, I will explain how as a child I coped with the abandonment and abuse I had to endure. Dissociation for survivors of childhood sexual abuse may include feelings of confusion, disorientation, nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty experiencing emotions, and the inability to form proper relationships. I experienced all of this and I moved through life using denial and repression as a mask for my pain. Then, out of nowhere, my demons would strike back and send me sprawling to the ground. All the isolation, the pain, doubts that linger would overwhelm me and plunge me back into the darkness. From exceedingly early in my life, I was like a vessel into which characters and personalities could be stored to bring out in times of need. This cast of characters would be my fantasy escape, my safety net when reality was threatening to overwhelm me. Henry is a seven-year-old boy. He is good company, funny, bright. I still have the company of Henry up to this day. Then there is Harvey. He was such a funny character too. He took over when I was a 10 years old. He would fight my battles. Any of the fights I got into at school or Glandor Boys Home Harvey would fight for me. Harvey won a few. I lost a lot. There are others, Ben is a character reminiscent of the song that Michael Jackson wrote for his rat. This cast of characters stand shoulder to shoulder with me as I continue to face my nightmares. I have this reoccurring dream where everything is an opaque black and I can see or the outlined figure of a male adult reaching out to the boy to grasp the child's hand. The child cannot speak as his lips are sewn together. I know it is me even though I cannot see the face of the child. I see a hear a muffled noise and a sound of a whimpering cry, and the wind begins to rise. Then there follows a deafening crash of thunder and I would hear this voice say, trust me, believe me. This adult was holding my hand. I could not get free. From an early age I suffered complex trauma, and this affected my developing brain. I have, as an adult, to comprehend it and accept it, and it may have limited my capacity to integrate sensory, emotional, and cognitive information, which then leads to over-reactive responses to subsequent stress and long-term effects such as cognitive, behavioral, physical and mental health problems. I have often suffered from fits of delirium, but I believe the dissociation to have been a useful weapon or at least shield to help me to survive my childhood. My ego structure was overwhelmed by the experience of the sexual abuse, and I learned from an early age to leave my body. I could remove myself from the experience and that way does not carry the true horror of it. Of course, that pain and hurt was never truly escaped but logged away so that it would drip feed and bleed out throughout my life, and it would fuel the self-destructive behavior for years to come. From an early age, I was using razor blades to cut myself. I would go and hide in the toilet and cut pieces of my hands and arms. I would have been about 10 years old when this started. I was trying to hurt them, the adults that hurt me, but I took it out on myself. I did it every second day. I would need stitches. The adults around me could not work out why I was mutilating myself. I'm not even sure if I knew at the time. I know now, and I still have some of the scars on my hands to this day. When my father hurt me, I could see what was happening. I would float around the room like white feathers from a pillow, light and soft and warm. I was outside my body wondering if my father was from a different planet. Both of us were alien and otherworldly. It is scary sometimes I see myself falling from the sky spinning around and around in circles, spinning out of control there is nothing for me to grab onto. The air passes through my hair I am in free flight. My hand, my face, my ears, and my nose were all freezing up. I then would hit the ground with the loudest, biggest thud. Where there was dust rising past me. Exploding ten feet into the air. I struggle to get up off the ground, and the dust is still swirling all around me. Like a mini tornado dancing round and round. The self-destructive behavior, the cutting, the dissociation was my sanctuary all the time I was at Glandor and even when I was sent home for visits. The staff were concerned enough to send me for tests and treatments, and I was beginning to fear myself too. They made me have lots of eeg. I think they were trying to work out if I was just naughty or crazy. They gave me these tests after the test. They then started me on so many medications that would make me tired all the time. I would always go to sleep in class. I was like a zombie. I would then get the cane from Mr. Beard. They were always sending me to all sorts of doctors to find out what was wrong with me but of course many of them knew exactly why I was so disturbed. Then there were the cards they showed me. And the pictures they asked me. What did they mean? How was I supposed to know? They were always doing some tests on me and giving me a new medication all the time. I at this point was hearing sounds and voices. Voices that would be calling me. As an adult I once told a doctor all I saw at night was blood. I told him about my other bad dreams as well. There were scenarios where lights would flicker and flash in a passageway in which I was running fast. I always would be looking behind me for that dark shadow. A shadow from my past. The past where I could never escape from. Where I would be hunted down and killed. I now know that I most likely would have been diagnosed as ADHD if there was a name for it back in the early '60s. I was scattered, disembodied, and if I spoke, I would jump from subject to subject. I was shattered at their hands. I was to become a tool in this toxic orchestra, their instrument to do as they please with 24/7. No wonder I constructed so many creative ways to survive. What I'd loved to do as a child was to create an image. I lay on my back a gland or on the oval and look at the night sky. I would imagine what it would be like to ride a falling star, as it flickers, shines, and it glows in the evening sky. I have always known I had a guardian angel. I have always known that there was a force protecting me. How could I have survived so much time with the devil if there was not somebody giving me divine support? Sister of Mercy Chapter 6 My sister was born in August 1955 at Carlton, Victoria. My twin brother, I and my sister were incredibly close. We were the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. We were very rarely apart, and we formed a little unit outside the adults. By the time my brother, and I had reached five my sister was taller than us and she would use her physical superiority to let us know she was in charge but we both loved her still. My sister had short golden white wavy hair and blue eyes. She had been blessed with very a loud voice and boy could she scream. Her angelic looks and her sweet nature meant that she was a child who people always seemed to like. She would always be the center of attention when there was a crowd but not from dominating and being an extrovert but from being demure and polite. The expression butter would not melt in her mouth was coined for my sister. Of course, this angel of a child would quite happily bash her little brothers to get her own way. My sister's early life and her apparent softness contrast with the terrible voyage she would have to endure. My sister was to experience a life I would not wish on anyone, and it hardened her. She became a strong woman. It was the only way she could survive. By the time I was 12 I had spent 5 years going back and forth from Glandor boys home to my family. This time was also punctuated by time with foster carers and other relatives, but I spent most of my childhood cowering from the abuse of the boys home or trying to survive my father. I was around the age of 12 or 13 when I spent some of the winter in the family home in Adelaide. It was another of those uneasy times where the family was united, and I was happily away from Glandor and in the relative security of ordinary domestic abuse. One night I remember being woken by the sound of crying. I recognized the sound of my sister's distress and called out to her. Sis. Are you alright? I called out again from my bed but there was no response. The crying lasted a while and there was no answer to my calls. I decided that I would get up and see what was going on. I shared a room with my twin brother so I tiptoed across to him to see if I could wake him. I told him our sister was crying but now she had gone silent. I desperately wanted him to go and investigate or at least to accompany me. I tried to persuade him to go as my anxiety began to grow. I felt that warm feeling in my groin and then run down my legs. I was conditioned to be scared and wetting myself was a common occurrence. I stood there pleading with my brother to help me. Without his support I decided to go and wake mother and father so they could find out the reason for my sister's distress. I remember the combined force of the moonlight and the streetlight burning through the window. It was a full moon, and it was casting shadows that terrified me, shadows that were reminiscent of the shed at Glandor and the darkness that had descended over me there. Outside the window, the wind was howling. I could hear the trees rustling moving back and forth in the yard. Hail had already woken me twice that evening and the rain continued to drive at the windows. The storm raged outside and built into thunder and lightning as I braced myself to leave the security of my room and go to my sister's aid. I decided that I would head straight to her so I opened the door and began to sneak, on tiptoe, to her room. When I opened her bedroom door I was confronted by the shadow. At first, I was sure or what or who I was seeing so I turned the light on, and I then saw my father. My father had blood all over his right hand, and he was naked. I cried out to mother. Sleep, sleep child! was her reply. I screamed that my father had killed my sister I then ran, as fast as I could out the front door. I banged on our next-door neighbor's house I and carried on screaming that my father had murdered my sister begin the occupants to call the police. I was crying and shaking, and it was so cold, and I was soaking wet with urine and shivering for my terror. I continued to stutter please call the police. Help her. I do not know how long I was outside, but the neighbors eventually woke up and took me in. They bathed me and put me in one of their spare beds. Later I remember the police did come and they asked me for a statement. I told them what I had experienced, everything I could remember. I still thought that my father had killed my sister and that my mother had let him do it. I knew my father had come to the neighbor's door, but I had felt quite safe at that point. I knew my father could not hurt me as the lady next door had two sons and they were bigger than him. The two boys had gone over to my house after I had turned up on their doorstep. They had knocked on the door and my father told them to fuck off. Then my father had thrown my brothers, sisters, and mother out of the house and into the street. It was my mother and our neighbors who had then called the police. My father was arrested and locked up for three years. His mother died while was in jail. He did not go to the funeral. It was during this prison stint that I began to take advantage of his absence. I probably thought I was free and was unaware that I was acting out from the damage he had caused. I had access to his car, and I would drive it all over Adelaide. I was only 12 or 13 but already I was picking up girls going on dates. I would take them to drive in movies. Another favourite spot was St. Kilda Beach as there was unlikely to be any police there. As I said, I began to live my own life, but I was not aware that I was still in my father's shadow. My sister eventually moved to the top end of Australia where she now lives with Aboriginal people. She has been there for the last four years, and it seems to have done her good. She seems to have mellowed and is able to forget the past. I know she is a different person from the damaged young girl my father left behind. She now speaks in an extremely low voice. She now has a softness about her. Peace. She has lost that hardness she had developed to stay alive. We were so close as young kids, so open. We had lost that to survive and even shut ourselves off from each other. I can never understand my mother rolling over and making out she was asleep. Why hadn't she ever helped my sister? Why hadn't she protected my sister, her child, and not turned her back on her, abandoned her to suffer sexual attacks from my father? My father had on many occasions raped my mother in front of me. I was a child, but I knew enough that I could tell he was hurting my mother. I did not understand the nature of sexual assault until I was older, until I was able to identify my own victimhood along with hers. I came to understand the sickness of the rapist, the power and damage of that evil and I feel blessed that I was never that evil. My mother, unsurprisingly, took my father back the second he left prison. She took him back and continued to turn a blind eye to the suffering of my sister. The attacks continued until she, and my other sister, were able to move out. Whilst the attacks went on all three women were silent and protected themselves by protecting my father. They had no sort of life and I am amazed how they were able to live through what they did and go on to have families of their own. They both went on to have children themselves, even grandchildren now and to the outside these families might seem quite normal and free of shadows that we had to endure. This is just a surface impression. I know that my sister's oldest child, my nephew, is also the child of my father.